You know, we don't think about foundations once they're in place. This building, I remember, many of you also might remember, when we broke ground on this building, they kept digging down, 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 down into the ground. And it was interesting because um, I'd never been that close to a construction site. And I kept thinking, why did they have to dig so deep? Because this part that we're actually sitting in doesn't have anything underneath it. It's just sort of a, a slab, I guess. But under that slab, they still had to build several layers of strength into the ground with beams and with other, other things that they put in place. And um, those things took a while. Um, those things took a while to get in place. And a lot of us who were coming to church each week, who were coming Wednesdays and Sundays, and we'd look at the hole and say, it's still a hole. It's still a hole. It's still a hole. When are they going to start building this thing? Well, they were building it. But to us, it didn't look like a building. It looked like a hole, and they were putting some things down in there and putting them in place. But it was very, very, very important. We don't often think about the foundation of our homes, of the buildings that we enter and uh, work in, of our schools. But those foundations are essential. If you do not have a foundation, like Jesus said in that, in that talk about building your house on a rock, if you do not have a foundation, when tough times come, you will fall apart. Because there's no strength built into your life. There's no solid ground beneath you. So as we look at this passage this morning in, in Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to continue on and understanding a little bit more about what that foundation is, specifically. Because as we follow Jesus, God's word teaches us to build our lives on the foundation of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of my favorite songs lately that the worship team has taught us is that one that says, I will build my house upon his love. It is a firm foundation. I love that song. Hebrews 6 teaches us that same thing. We need to build our lives upon Christ. Once we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, once we've come to faith to believe, when we've heard the gospel and we, we accept it or we we acknowledge it as true. Just like his disciples, we learn more and more about Jesus. We don't stop right there. We are to continue to grow and to build upon that. His disciples spent three years with him, following him, watching him, seeing him teach, seeing him heal, eventually seeing him go to the cross and then rise again in victory. But if we don't have a strong foundation of knowing who Christ is and what he has accomplished, we are in danger. We're in danger. This is part of one of the warnings that the, the, the preacher of Hebrews has given to his congregation. We heard part of it last week when, when Pastor Mike taught us from the end of chapter 5 to this point. But we are to never neglect or drift, drift away from, or fall away from our foundation in Jesus Christ. It must stay in place. It must stay strong. But neither are we to just stay there as though we're staying in kindergarten. If, if we didn't do anything but build the foundation of this church, we'd all be sitting outside right now. 
We'd be on a nice solid ground because they had built the foundation. But if it rained or if it snowed or anything else that happens in New England like that, it, it, we'd, be, we'd be stuck. We'd have a nice strong foundation, but we wouldn't have a building. We'd have no, no walls, no ceiling. The foundation's important, but it's not all there is. Unfortunately, you know and I know many people who have come to Christ. They've come to accept the message of the gospel, and then that's it. They never continued the building process with the Holy Spirit to build a house that glorifies God. They were in danger of drifting away or staying as babies, just drinking milk but never growing up. And that's unnatural. That's not how God created things. See, God's will for us is to grow up, to mature, to no longer be infants. As it says in Ephesians 4, God wants us to mature so that we're not tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. You see, if we stay babies, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. And there are people out there who are scheming, who are deceitful, who would like to trick you along the way. And when you don't have a strong foundation and when you don't build upon that foundation, you're in danger. And so the preacher of Hebrews knows this and he's warning his congregation and by the Holy Spirit, we are being warned. This whole passage, which started in chapter 5, verse 11, goes all the way through chapter 6, verse 8. It's meant to be a warning for God's people to not grow weary or lazy or distracted in their spiritual growth. Keep on growing closer and closer to Jesus. Keep on growing. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't think you've arrived. Keep on growing. The preacher of Hebrews, is, he's not mad at his flock. He loves them so deeply, he's worried about them. He wants them to be safe. He wants them to be secure in all that Jesus has done for them already, in all that he is currently doing in their lives, but also in all that he will do for them as he fulfills all of his promises. So the preacher gives this strong warning because he loves his church. God loves his church too. And he uses his preachers to tell them that. Sometimes we don't feel very lovable. God loves us anyway. He sent Jesus to prove it. So let's remember the context of this. Chapter 6. In fact, if we start with the first word of chapter 6, it says, therefore, now we all know that the word therefore, what, does anyone know how we, say it loud, is there for a reason, so we have to go back to say, like, what was there before, right? So we know, because we've been studying the book from the very first chapter, we know that the therefore is there for a reason. The word links these teachings from the preceding chapters about Jesus to this word here. So we've learned that in, in chapter 1, Jesus is better than angels. So don't worship angels, worship Jesus. We've learned that he's better than Moses, so don't worship Moses or the law. He's better than that. We've learned that he's, he's better than the prophets of the Old Testament and even better than the high priest, even Melchizedek, which we'll hear more about in a couple weeks. 
Jesus is better than that. So in the context of that, this passage then ends with, in chapter 5 when the preacher is very passionate about this immaturity. To settle for an immature faith is a disastrous choice. For any believer to make, because of Jesus, to make it, he has to be the one and only source of our help and our hope. Because he is the only one who is able to rescue us. There is no other. So to drift away from that foundational truth, that saving relationship with Jesus, that can never end. You're never beyond needing to be saved. Now, you are saved if you put your faith in Christ, but you continue to walk in that salvation. Don't walk away from it. Don't think, well, I was saved by grace, but now I have to work to keep my salvation. You don't have to work to keep your salvation. It is a free gift from God. But you continue to walk in the fullness of that salvation day after day, week after week, year after year, until you see him face to face. So it's a disaster when we stop walking in it. It's like our salvation is like a gate and we enter into that and in that, inside of that area is all these other opportunities to grow and to learn and to become more like Christ and to, to be working for his kingdom and to be using your gifts and abilities, but they're in there. Don't turn around and leave the gate. Don't walk out and say, well, I went through there once, but now I'm going to go over here and try a few other gates. That, that's not going to work. Jesus is the one and only way the one and only door, the one and only way for us to get in to that beautiful life with him, a life of forgiveness, a life of purpose, a life for eternity with God. If you remember back in these therefore chapters before this, we've already been warned of two other dangers, two other dangers that the, the, the preacher's concerned about. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 4, he said, there's a danger of drifting away, of not keeping yourself anchored in Christ. This is a similar warning that we received this morning. In chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, there's the danger of disobedience, of, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to do what I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. Not even God. Right? So there's a danger in, in that kind of rebellion, and we have to stay in a, a submissive place, in a place where, where we're willing to follow God wherever he calls us, even if it wasn't our idea in the first place. This danger, this third danger, the danger of drifting away was one, the danger of disobedience is two, and now this one, here in this passage, is the danger of immaturity, the danger of not growing up. Let's continue to read here. It says, therefore, because of all these things that were said in, in chapters 1 through 5, therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching, teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, right? So let us leave the elementary teachings of Christ. He doesn't mean turn around and go back out the gate. He doesn't mean leave that way. He means keep going, keep going. This doesn't mean to let the gospel Go in favor of some other gospel or some other set of beliefs. 
Because we know the scripture teaches that this is our only hope, that Christ is our only way to God. Paul the Apostle wrote in Galatians 6.14, But as for me, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He also wrote in Romans, 16, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes in it. Why would I be ashamed of that? And so we know Jesus is the foundation, and without that foundation, a building is in danger of collapsing. You have to have a strong... Begin to grow spiritually and to build upon that that salvation. To build their lives solidly on that. Never leaving the truths about Christ. So to leave the elementary teachings, as it says here, means to move forward into maturity by taking the ABCs of our faith and beginning to thread them together and make words out of them at cat, right? Put them together. And then as we've made words, make sentences, cat is smelly. You know, like making sentences going further, right? So we learned the ABCs, but now we're putting them together into sentences and then paragraphs and then words that make books of our lives, right? A story of our lives. So we don't stay with the cat. We need help to continue to mature and motivation to mature. I also like in verse 1 that he says, let us. Because often people think that preachers are somehow above your average person. They are not. There is no above other than Christ, right? So, so we are all, all of us, let us, let us together leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Together, as a unit, as a body. Not just as individuals, like, oh, that person's growing, that person's growing, that person's growing, that one's not, that one's not, that one's not. Let's us, together as a body, help each other to grow to maturity. That's why God put us together. We can encourage one another and teach one another and help one another and correct one another so that we grow, that we don't stay babies. So he includes himself, the preacher of this, of this beautiful book, includes himself with all those who have to keep on growing to become more like Christ. Paul also echoes this when he admitted that he, he hadn't yet reached the goal of full maturity. In Philippians 3, here on the slide, it says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, and let's read this together, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I pray that is our prayer. That is our motivation to press on, to not get lazy, get comfortable, become apathetic, get bored. Press on. There's more. You'll never get it all in this life. There's always more in Christ. 
So Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, I'm just going to read through these, these three verses because really I'm just going to focus on this. Next week we'll get to verse 4 because that's another whole piece that we have to grasp and have help by the Holy Spirit to understand. But here it says, Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ, building upon them, and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, or of faith in God, or instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. God permitting, God willing, God allowing, we will grow, right? So as we think about these three verses, we can see what the preacher means by the elementary or the basic or the foundational teachings of living in Christ. So I want us this morning to examine that because I want to make sure you got a strong foundation, that I got a strong foundation. Because if we're missing any of these basic understandings about who Christ is and what he has done, then we'll be a little wobbly, right? One corner of our foundation might not be filled in. And if the wind happens to hit that side of the the building, we might topple. We don't want that. We want a full, strong foundation. And so instead of just in general saying, well, have a strong foundation, put your trust in Jesus, the author here helps us to understand some key components to what it looks like to put your trust in Jesus. So let's review them. They're here in these first three verses to see if we have what it takes to keep growing in Christ together. Because if this foundation's not secure, we're in danger. That's the simple truth that he's teaching us. A strong foundation is built on Jesus' life, his way of living. His relationship with God and with us has built the way. So the first thing that we see mentioned here, right in chapter, right in chapter 6, verse 1, is the word repentance. We have to repent of trusting in our own goodness, our own works, our own ability to, to live a good life and to, to make it into God's presence in eternity. We all know that, right? In basic, basic Christianity, you don't get yourself to heaven. Your parents can't get you there. Your, your good works can't get you there. Repentance will get you there. Now, repentance is the process of admitting that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Simple as that. Most of us have that. But some people, because of pride... They may hang out with Christians. They may sing some of the Christian songs. They may even come and sit in a pew here. They may not have ever really come to a place of repentance. They're still trying to, to, to help God with some of their goodness. And we all know that all of our goodness is like filthy rags before God. <laughs> our, our best, best, best is not even close to a holy and pure God. So the gospel truth is that we have no way of overcoming our sinful nature or our our sinful DNA. We can't do it outside of Christ's power. We have to accept that we are sinners who need to be saved. We can't save ourselves no matter what we do. We must repent. We must walk in humility. Just as Christ did. Christ gave us an example of humility. Now he didn't have sins to repent from. Because he 
resisted those temptations and lived. He's the only one who ever lived a holy life. So he could become the perfect sacrificial lamb for us. But he certainly walked in humility. Because repentance takes humility. Jesus showed us what humility was. He laid aside his throne in heaven and came to earth and lived among us. Yucky people. And then gave his life for us. Have you accepted that you need him as your savior? And that there's no way for you to enter into relationship with God except by being washed in the blood of that lamb. If so, you've got one piece of your foundation in place. Now let's move on to the second piece. The second word that we see here is the word faith, right? You could underline these if you've got your Bible in front of you or just write them down, but faith, it's at the end there of, of verse one. Now, it doesn't just say faith, does it? Not faith for, for faith's sake. You know, you sometimes see that word used in our culture and in our, in our language, you know, believe, but then they don't fill in the rest. Or have faith, but then they don't say, in what? What am I supposed to have faith in? Myself? No. Government? No. My teachers? No. Faith in what? Or is it who? Well, fortunately, the scripture is clear here. It says, faith in God. Faith in God. So repentance brings us to a place of having to have faith, believing that what God has done is sufficient to bring us salvation. To stop trusting in ourselves to earn our way to heaven, but to trust in Christ alone, to put our faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. This is what leads to sanctification and salvation. Our faith in God. God is the one who makes us holy through Jesus Christ. He washes away our sin. He gives us that, that robes of righteousness. We have to have faith in that and, and, and let that be part of our foundation that we never let go. It has to be solidly in place. Don't start putting faith in yourself or faith in someone else. Only faith in God will bring you into that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus put his faith in God. Again, he showed us through his life an example. He had to trust God, especially we see it on display in Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion. He, he had to bring it and say, oh, you know, God, this is, this is not my will, but, but let yours be done. In other words, I trust you. I have faith that my death will bring glory to your name and salvation for the people that you love. The next thing that we see at the beginning of verse 2 is, is baptisms. It says, instructions about baptisms, and there's actually an S at the end, which can be a little confusing unless we think about who he's talking to. He's talking to Hebrews, people who were raised in the Jewish faith. There were baptisms before the church existed, before Pentecost. Jesus actually was baptized by John the Baptist, right? So baptisms were already a part of their sort of religious rituals and things that they did to, to 
prove to God or to show God, just like them bringing sacrifices of, of lambs and bulls and doves and things like that, they went through baptisms. John the Baptist was baptizing when Jesus approached him. He had already baptized who, who knows how many people. So what kind of baptism was that? It wasn't the same kind of baptism that we practice. We practice a baptism which says, I identify as a Christian I have given myself to God and I know that I have died as we go under the water. I have died with Christ on the cross and I will rise again with Christ into glory. It's, a, it's an act of faith that we believe the gospel brings us eternal life and only Jesus can do that. Well, Jewish, Jewish believers had some cleansing rituals and some religious washing things that they had practiced for a long time, and now they were being instructed on what baptism means to those who put their faith in Christ. There was clarification that was needed to help them to understand what type of baptism are we talking about here. Let's not get confused. So we need to understand that, and not just understand it, but we need to practice it. Here's another thing that you need to look at in your life. Have you been baptized? Have you identified yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, believing that through his life and sacrifice, death and resurrection, you too will follow that path spiritually and come to wholeness through that process? There's going to be a baptism here. I don't know exactly when. Pastor Mike and I will plan it, but there'll be a baptism here fairly soon, maybe in June, and we will ask if any of you want to identify yourself that way as a believer. It's a public identification. You've already done this in private. It's not like you become a Christian at baptism. You've already become a Christian. Now you're just telling the story with your life by walking through that beautiful ritual, really. It's, 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 it's something that we do that proves that we want to follow Christ. He himself was baptized. We want to follow in his footsteps. Number four that we see listed here, right after baptisms in verse two, it says, the laying on of hands. Okay, now this seems weird, right? First of all, we're in COVID. You're not supposed to touch anybody, right? The laying on of hands. We need instruction in the laying on of hands. Well, let's think about this for a minute. In, in the Old Testament... We see that the laying on of hands was to convey a blessing from one generation to another. We see it in Genesis. So all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 48, we see a grandfather placing his hands on his grandsons and then speaking blessing over their life, passing on the blessing. But now, in Christianity, there needs to be some instruction because some things have changed radically when Jesus came and began to lay hands on people, touch people, or even speak to people, all kinds of things happened. People were healed. People were set free. Demons left people. You know, all kinds of stuff happened through the laying on of hands. And so the New Testament church has established that the laying on of hands is part of our faith walk. It's part of what we do as believers. As we walk in Christ, we pray for others. And when we pray for them, we lay hands on them as a sign of faith, as a sign of connection between heaven and earth. So Christianity still practices this. But we need to look at this specifically. Here in, um, in the book of Acts. So 
In the Old Testament, it was practiced as a, a way of blessing one generation to another. In the New Testament, we have these four, B, C, D, and E. We have these four things that, that we see practiced right there in the early church. The first one was used for commissioning servants, the deacons or the, those who were going to come and help to feed the, this growing community of believers. They were brought before, before the apostles. And it says, the people presented these men to the apostles who then prayed and laid their hands on them. And then they began to minister. Stephen was one of those. So it's laying over the hands is commissioning someone for service. In Acts 8.17, 8, the apostles laid hands on the new believers so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. So they believed, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. It had come at Pentecost, but they hadn't heard that message. They didn't have TikTok and YouTube and stuff to, to get it out there on the social media. It took a while for that message to come, and so they needed to lay their hands on it. It says that Peter and John placed their hands on the new believers, and they received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Letter C, in Acts 13, verse 3, we see the laying on of hands as a sending off blessing for Paul and Barnabas, who were going on a mission, who were going to go out and plant churches and spread the gospel in other places outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel even. This is what we'll be doing with, with Pastor Mike and Kaylin and the girls. We'll be laying hands on them, hopefully in June. We might have to stand back a little bit, but we're going to send them off with the blessing of the church so that they can go to their new church and, and they can preach the gospel and reach that area that God has called them to. So that verse in, in, in Acts 13, 3 says, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. We should begin fasting and praying for the Penzas. It's a process that they're ventured into to receive a new calling and to move to another part. Fortunately, this part of the country, they have some family there. But still, it's a new calling in their life. So, so pray for them. Fast and pray. Fasting is another way of just focusing in on how to pray and not being distracted by having to prepare meals or, or go out to dinner. You know, you can spend more time in prayer. We'll talk about fasting at another time. And the last way in which the laying on of hands is displayed in the book of Acts is in Acts 28, verse 8. We see the laying on of hands with prayer for the healing of the sick. That verse says, his father was sick in bed, suffering from a fever and dysentery. So Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, he placed his hands on him, and he was healed. Paul learned this from Jesus, from the disciples of Jesus, from the stories of Jesus. Jesus did this over and over again. And so we, in Christ, who are trying to follow Christ's example, also should pray for the sick that they would be healed. Now let's get back to the list that's here in these three verses. Number five is the resurrection, right? It says in, verse, in, at the, in the middle of verse two, after the laying on of hands, it says, the resurrection of the dead. Because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, believers live in the confidence that they too will be resurrected when they die. Death has been defeated. We just celebrated that on Easter. Death has been defeated. So the resurrection of the dead is a key foundational place for us to build upon, to build our faith upon, to build our life of faith upon. 
We build it on prayer, laying on of hands. We build it on walking in the obedience of baptism and identifying ourselves as believers. We build it on the faith in God that is necessary. We grow in all of these areas as we place our faith in them. You have to believe by faith in the resurrection. You were not there that morning, that first Easter morning. It is a story which has been told to us faithfully for thousands of years. You have to have faith to believe that. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you are not a Christian. You might fool yourself. Maybe culturally you can be a Christian, but if you don't believe in the resurrection, you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. His whole life crescendos at the resurrection. Death has been defeated. Sin has been paid for. We are able to walk in obedience to Christ and walk into a whole new relationship because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, but now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits, most of us are not fruit farmers, but the first fruits are the first fruits to ripen. The first apple that turns red on the tree, that's the first fruit. Christ was the first fruit of the resurrection. Well, that implies that there's second fruit and third fruit and fourth fruit and fifth fruit and, and thousands and millions of more fruit that God will harvest through the resurrection. All believers who follow him will be one of those fruit. So when you act a little fruity, it, it makes sense, right? God made us that way. Jesus is the first, but we are the many, and we hope that we follow in that. Lastly, in this passage, the foundational truths that need to be in place, that need to be explored as new believers, but then accepted by faith, the last one is probably the most difficult for us. Number six is eternal judgment. Ah, we were doing so well. Eternal judgment... Oh, this is of equal importance. We cannot, because we don't like it and because it makes us uncomfortable, we cannot sort of hide it or forget about it. If you're building a building of faith, a life of faith in Jesus Christ, if you're building a community of believers in Jesus Christ, you must have as your foundation this truth about eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is equally important to repentance to faith in God, to baptism, to prayer, and to resurrection. It's the end of the story. It's the final chapter. You wouldn't read and read and read and read and read, and then, you know, this a 10-chapter book, you read up to chapter 9 and then say, like, eh, I don't care about chapter. The conclusion is in chapter 10. You wouldn't put in all that effort and then throw the book away. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that there is a future judgment. Now, that may sound not too exciting. Judgment is one of those words we all cringe at. But it's sometimes what we need to know and to have a solid place with God. Judgment isn't always negative. We judge between good and evil, right? So because we live in a society and we're human... We're creatures of this world. 
we live and we hear and we absorb some of it. We, we, we don't like this word, and yet if we think about it for a moment, we actually do. Tie this word into justice, and all of a sudden, ah, okay, there does need to be justice. God is a God of justice. Now, justice has often been perverted and neglected and ignored in our world. We look at things that happen and we say, how can this be? Why is this happening? And there are many people who prefer not to believe that there's an eternal judgment and they just do whatever they want. But scripture's clear. Jesus teaches on and the rest of the Bible confirms his teaching that there is a place called hell. There's not just a heaven. There is also a hell. And as we build our faith on the truth of who Christ is and what he has come to show us, we realize that God is making a choice as to those who come through the grace of Jesus Christ and through what he has done and those who reject him. The resurrection, along with other things, means that God's justice will ultimately prevail. Listen to Romans 14, verses 9 through 12. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your neighbor, your brother or your sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. All of us. We. He's speaking to the church. We. This is Paul. We will all stand before the judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account to ourselves, to God. This is the gospel. This is chapter 10 of the elementary teachings. These are elementary teachings. We don't like all our elementary teachings sometimes. When, when Tanya mentioned math, I was like, I hated math. You know? Sorry, Tanya. Justice. Payment for sin. Jesus offers you a free payment. He says, I'll take your sin if you'll Take my righteousness. It seems like a good deal. Some will refuse. All through history, some have refused. Jesus taught about the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. I'm just going to read a little bit of that. I want to read the whole thing because you're probably familiar with it. But, But Jesus says of himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... So in his return, with all the angels with him, the second coming of Christ he's referring to, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. This is part of the role of Jesus Christ as victor, as as supreme, ultimate, better than all others. This is part of his role, is to to allow justice to take place. 
Does it cause a little fear for us? Probably. But it should draw you closer to God, deeper into his word. It should cause you to want to read and understand the Holy Scriptures. You see, these six beliefs, these basic foundational things that the author talks about is just the beginning of growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ. In a sense, they define what salvation truly looks like. Because in the end, those who stand in Christ, who have identified themselves as Christians, who have walked through baptism, who have put their faith in God, who have practiced praying to the Father on behalf of others, who have practiced missions, who have who've gone out to share the gospel, all of those will be the sheep. They will be welcomed into the blessing of God. But all those who reject the resurrection who reject Christ's sacrifice for them, who don't need to humble themselves before God. It says in that word, they will be humbled. It says every knee will bow, whether they want to or not. Mine want to. Yours want to. I know it. Sometimes we're stubborn, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you want to bow before him. I I don't know if I could stand it face to face with him. I'm going to need to bow just as his majesty. But there are those who have set themselves so against him and everything he stands for that they'll be forced to bow and then Jesus will do his work of separating the sheep from the goats. This is the gospel. So my questions for you before we get into the rest of the chapter next week is are you grounded in these truths? Does any of this sound foreign to you or strange or you don't understand? Because if that's where you are, it's okay. No one's going to judge you. But I want you to grow. I want you to ask. I want you to read. I want you to explore and find out what the Bible teaches about these six things and how they apply to your life if they do. Because they may not. If you're not grounded in these truths or you've rejected any one of them, like I said, you're in danger. You're in danger. Now, the verse that we're going to get into is verse 4, and I want to read it because it's part of God's Word and God's Spirit wants to use it. But verse 4 says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened in these truths who have tasted all this, if they fall away, it says it's impossible for them to come back, to be restored to repentance. Think about that. These elementary teachings are so important. If they don't line up with Scripture, if you're not lining your life up with Christ as your foundation then actually the Apostle Paul taught this in Galatians. He said, you know, it's no gospel at all. In Galatians chapter 1, remember when we studied that a few months ago? The Apostle, who loved his people greatly as well, he said, I'm astonished that you have so quickly deserted the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And you're turning now to a different gospel. A different gospel, which is really 
no gospel at all. In other words, it cannot save you. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. These are some of the strongest words in the New Testament. Let them be cursed by God. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, what was preached in the early church, if there's some new version of this, let them be under God's curse. Now, I've heard many new versions. I'm sure you have too. There's one version that says there is no hell and that all people go to heaven because God is love. So what do we do with all these teachings? These teachings from Jesus' mouth himself. What do we do with that? We can't accept a new version. He says, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? And am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's pressure to give up some of these elementary teachings, isn't there? There's pressure to not call sin, sin. To not call for repentance. To say, it's okay, God understands. You can do that bad stuff. You, don't, you shouldn't feel guilty. This pressure. Our culture is, is, is crumbling under this pressure. Whatever's right for you is right for you. Whatever's good for you to do, go ahead and do it. God understands. But what about his word? What about the truth of scripture? We just hide it? Throw it away? Crumble? Because we won't hold on to it? So these elementary teachings are essential for life in Christ. Now, I want you to understand something. These aren't just intellectual, doctrinal teachings. Every single one of these is centered on Christ. And not just on him cognitively, but on him relationally. Because the whole point of Jesus coming is so that we could have a relationship with him that would bring us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're relationship people. So don't take this list and make it into a list like check, 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 check. You don't do that with the people you love. Faith, you don't say to Mark, like, here's the checklist today. You got you to gotta kiss me? Check. You got to bring in the groceries? Check. You got to watch the kids? Check. And wash the floor too? Check. I mean, that, that kind of, like, that's not a relationship. You know, when we do that to God, we lose the aspect of all of this is for us to have a relationship with him forever. To be able to walk on those streets of gold one day. To be able to live in the kingdom of God without sin, without sickness, without disease, without death. He wants a relationship with us. So will you ground your life in these truths? Put up the last slide there. Will you ground your life in it? Let's do that together. Let's not give up, even if there's a lot of pressure, internally or externally, for us to change what we think about Christ. 
Let's not do it. Let's never believe another gospel. Because we've learned that's no gospel at all. Jesus has brought us the truth. The one and only truth. I'm sorry the world doesn't like that. But it's still true. Let's stand together. I want to pray for you. These warnings, these messages, they're not easy. they, They sometimes make us uncomfortable. We struggle. But God knows our struggle. God knows where we're weak. And guess what? That's where he's strong. As long as we keep our relationship open with him, he doesn't mind that we are weak. He knows we're weak. But he wants to give us his strength. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his church. He's given us the fellowship that we have with his word by the spirit. But we have to receive these things and build our life upon them. Don't leave them for any reason. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us as a body of believers to understand what your spirit is saying to us and to apply it to our lives, to to ground our lives on it, to never leave it behind, to never question whether it's worth it or not. Give us your Holy Spirit to, to empower us to live for Christ, to live in that relationship with Christ that Christ died to give us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that even when your word is hard to us, it's because you love us and you don't want to lose any one of us. You want to bring us all into your glorious kingdom one day through Jesus Christ. We praise you for that and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.